Hello, welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. Series 2 begins next week, and we have one last bit of bonus content to whet your appetite before that, and that is just a handful of outtakes from Series 1. And we're going to start out with our very first episode, Steptoe and Son. And when we originally set out to do this, the intention was to have each uh, show in one episode. And when we actually sat down to record, we realized we had so much to say and so much history to put out that it was too long. And so we ended up cutting it up into two episodes. And that has obviously been our standard from then on. And that's great because it means we get a chance to actually put so much more content in. But we still managed to take some stuff out. And with Steptoe and Son, particularly, we talked a lot about Tony Hancock uh, and and obviously the Golden and Simpson connection. So a couple of clips for you of that. Uh, and then there's also going to be a little bit about the legacy of Steptoe and, 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 and what it all meant in the end. Can I ask you how much, how, you know, did Hancock just turn up and read the scripts or was he involved in any in the writing process at all? I guess he was involved in developing the character, surely. Well, the character was his character. Yeah, I guess it was in the way so many comedians are. It's a sort of an exaggeration of some of their own tropes, uh, sure. their own things, I suppose. You you fall into the trap there, which often happens with Tony Hancock. And like, oh, he was this kind of morose character because that's what he played mm-hmm. on TV. Which And, and the fact that he was, became an alcoholic, depressed and killed himself kind of plays into that. Well, but then that kind of disguises the fact that, you know, he lived a whole life where he can be happy-go-lucky and a, a comedian and cheery sure. and... And I think especially when someone has killed themselves and it's like, oh, they were a depressive type. It's, depression doesn't really work like that, does it? It's, it's no. not like you're just like that constantly. I wanted to ask you, because Galton and Simpson obviously wrote Hancock's Half Hour Radio and yes. TV before this. And does that, I mean, that, that is a situation and it is a comedy, but, but it's, yep. it's kind of, you know, they're often different characters, slightly different worlds. Does that count as a sitcom? Are we including that? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would. Uh, but yeah, this is something perhaps we might have to deal with at some other point. It, what classifies as a sitcom? So, for example, Hancock's Half Hour, you've got the regular cast. You've got the the central character, who's always the same, certainly in terms of character, personality. Mm-hmm. But yes, some, one week he's an air steward, and the next week he's a lawyer, and the next week he's just, you know, sitting alone in his bedsit. That inconsistency comes from the radio series, uh, where they could play a lot more because it was radio. They could be a lot more surreal mm. as well and kind of create bigger worlds. It was almost like they were just writing a different a different play every week, just using similar characters. Yeah, but yeah, you are using those same characters, and then you got the Sid James character, who is essentially always the same kind of character. For example, you know, all the and all the other regular players. Yeah, it's, this is where you start to get into slightly muddy ground. A, a more recent example I always try and think of is um, the League of Gentlemen. Mm. Would you classify that as a sitcom? Because it's very mm. sketch-like, but then it's all set in this one world, and you do have narratives that kind of continue. But it's yeah. a series of sketches, really. I, I would say League of Gentlemen is a sketch show. I, I, you know, if, if you'd asked me that question ten minutes ago, that's what I would have said. 
<laughs> but yeah, yeah, but it's 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 not a straight it's not as straightforward as say the fast show or, or you know a classic exactly. Sketch show like and that. what's our, what is our definition? You know, there is a there's a there's a, a plot. There is a there is a continuation from one episode to the next. The characters develop in albeit in quite surreal ways. I think you need to have a consistent situation, as in you return to the status quo, and and perhaps mm-hmm. things will change over time. Characters come in or out, or whatever. But I think you need to have that if for a situation comedy, you need to have that situation. And, so Hancock is uh, borderline, definitely borderline. But because it's got that central character that's always the same, I don't know. But also that's something that's quite common uh, of building a show around a comedian, building a show around a performer. Mm. And, and that's what it's about, really. So, yeah, in terms of influence, uh, the fact that it's been repeated so often and, and is still so remembered, as opposed to, for example, a contemporary The Rag Trade, which still are known in sitcom circles but it's not kind of you know it's not the same resonance steptoe and dead dad's army and all that sort of stuff it it, i think it's got a timeless feel to it and obviously even when it was set it was kind of anachronistic it was like this is an old-fashioned feel to it yeah as in the character and the way they're living and there's there's sometimes in the later episodes and in one of the films there's a couple of feature films they made as well where you see Harold driving around with his horse and cart, like in the suburbs of London, and like these tower, these high tower, high rise buildings and stuff. And it just, it feels wrong. It feels yeah. so wrong because you suddenly see how out of place it is. Mm-hmm. But I think when I'm watching the series, it just feels like it's in this place and time. Mm-hmm. And that means you can appreciate it just on that level. And and the interrelationship stuff is still valid. You still see that. You see, oh God, I argued with my dad about that when I was a kid or whatever. And I think that's held it in good stead. I think the fact that the actors, this is what they're known for in public mm-hmm. memory. And yeah. I think that helps in terms of its history. It's undiluted. It's like their step to and son. Yes. Yes, I see what you mean. So there's no, they're, they're undiluted. There's no other perception of them in the public mm-hmm. mind. Perhaps a more enduring legacy and the success of Galton and Simpson, I think has played a large part in the British culture of sitcoms written by one person or a couple of people yes rather than the writer's room yeah and like i say that's why i say the directors kind of get a little bit lost in this i think the writer is the auteur of a british sitcom for mm-hmm. the most part mm-hmm. it wasn't like they were first to do it you know like we said frank muir and dennis norden but before if you're writing for like frankie howard there's like lots of people writing there you know eric sykes is writing stuff for for, for that yeah. uh, you know and and there's lots of gag writers but when you move away from gag writing to character writing it becomes more focused i think mm. i think that's what, what, what back at the beginning when we were talking about the origins of sitcom again i'm not saying this is the first sitcom but i think this was a fully formed situation comedy as opposed to like you, you talked about those other things before which were just just vehicles for gags yeah rather than dra- any sense of drama in them yeah again it's i certainly couldn't say it was the first but it's first wave Certainly, yeah. 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 And, uh, you know, I think that carries on. You've got the writing pairs, particularly, are common in British. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Clement and Lafrenet, Grant and Naylor, um, Marks and Grant. You know, it's, there's you'll see it all the way through. Ricky Gervais yeah. and Stephen Merchant, you know, yeah. you, you still see it. And in American shows, it's just never been like that. But they also churn them out. Which is why they can make 23, yeah, because they, they can take it in turns to carry the weight. I think you end up with British comedy a much more personal feel to it. Definitely. Yeah. But but like you were saying about some of the later episodes where they're recycling plots a little bit, that's that's the downside, yeah. isn't it?
Right then, next up, I've got a few more outtakes here from Dear John. Dear John was probably the most uh, obscure show we did of the first series, perhaps. Certainly the, the least well-remembered, I think. But we still had plenty to talk about. And I've got a few clips for you here. So, first of all, uh, a little bit about Sylvia, who we didn't cover really, and the change of the titles. And talking about the show in general and divorce uh, and how that has been represented in the sitcom. So, here we go. So, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a few other ancillary characters. We've got Mrs. Arnott, who sits at the back. Yeah, in that first series, Mrs. Arnott. Is she not in the second series? She is sort of hastily disposed of in the second series, uh, episode two, uh, in which she sort of just goes, oh, I'm going to go and stay with my daughter in Sheffield. I might be back at some point. Like, that's it. And they bring in Sylvia as a sort of replacement for her, who's a bit more engaging and has a bit more to offer. The lineup changes a little. Uh, I can see that. Like, maybe she's like, okay, she was the background character. The the joke was she didn't say much, and then she would pop in with a gag. Fair enough. You want to swap that out. I understand that. Uh, She quite often provides the punchline to the scene, doesn't she? So she just sits there quietly at the back, and everything happens. And then as things are dying down, she stands up, says something outrageous, and that's the end scene. All right, that's about all we've got time for this evening. Well, we've only just started talking. No, no, I have a hard and fast rule. We never go on past 9.30. Another five minutes just to resolve this with Ralph. Oh, we can pick it up next week. Rafe, do you feel better for having talked about it? No. Good. (laughs) Well, let's all get our things together, shall we? My husband... (laughs) ..used to dress up as a gladiator and make me play hoopla with ring donuts. But just speaking of Sylvia, who is the second series regular, mm. uh, she's actually in the first series. She makes a couple of guest appearances, like in parties. She's a Wednesday night person. Yes. And her function in, as a character at that point is that she's a bit of a, a bit of a kook, but she fancies John and he has to kind of gently rebuff her. So we see a different side of John through that, I guess. Yeah. John, I'm so glad I bumped into you. I'm having a little dinner party at my house next Saturday. I wondered if you'd like to come. Thank you, Sylvia, but to be honest, I'm not really one for social gatherings. (laughs) It's not really a social gathering. There'll only be you and me there. So in the second series, they bring her in as a regular character. Basically, same characters. You know, you can tell they've had to change things slightly just to make it work. But I think she's quite an engaging character. I think she works as a big character that isn't too ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And uh, but at the same time, I don't find her particularly interesting. And they never manage to really nail down like what she is. Like, is she nervous? Is she timid? Is she uh, over the top? I, I, like, I don't know what what is she really. I don't. I don't think the show makers know that either (laughs) let me ask you this just while we're on the subject of series two and the changes that were made number one why did they change the opening titles Mm. number two why did they change it to that because it's just (laughs) it's more or less the same thing but cheaper (laughs) well it's interesting you say that because i noticed in that in the first series episodes like say the very opening is he walks in the door hello darling i'm home oh there's no one here a letter in what is very apparently an empty house it's shot in quite close up, but it's just bare walls. There's no <laughs> furniture of any note. I didn't note. notice that. 
And it's like, ah, they obviously just shot this in an abandoned house somewhere, like on the on the fly. And then, you know, we see him outside the courthouse and stuff like that. But then we it, it, it tells the story of him moving out and going to find a bedsit. And even within the first series, they start cutting that shot. Because in the very first couple of episodes, you see him going into the bedsit. The guy, is, there's a bloke there, goes, oh, yeah, come in. He takes the to let yeah, sign out. They chop that down in the later episodes. So it's just, you just sort of see the basics. So I guess they just felt like, oh, we don't need to tell that story now. We, we understand it. We don't want to make it look like this has just happened. He's an established divorced guy now. But we still see him reading the letter in the second series. Specifically more what we set up in the second series is he gets the Dear John and then he spies the newspaper ad One to One Club. Ooh. So yeah, okay. it's setting up the All club, right. I guess. That's right. But yeah, it's an odd choice. It feels like you're making work where it doesn't need to be made. <laughs> mm. There's a bit right at the end here where a guy comes in and uh, asks Louise to move her car. And yeah. the way she speaks to him I, I hate her. <laughs> she calls him an odious little pleb. And I thought, it's you and me done, Louise. Miss Williams. Oh. Ms. Well? Ms. Williams. Oh, yeah, well, do you mind moving that vehicle of yours? It's blocking the entrance to the car park. Yes, yes, I'll be right there. Now get out. Odious little pleb. You know that thing about you, you should judge people on how they treat the wait staff? <laughs> well, that's it. She... She does particularly go for him in, in a way that she doesn't normally. Like, that is probably the most extreme version. Like, you can think, you would think that character, probably not that good with tradespeople, you know? Like, you, you can see that. But to be so kind of vicious to a character that we never see before or after, it's not like there's a reputation here. Well, th- what was the point of that scene then? Because we, wh- what was the point exactly. of him coming in? It doesn't move the drama on. <laughs> Why have you hired an actor to do it's that? It's purely to show us <laughs> who she is. Yeah, I mean, I think the actual point of it is to give her some impetus to leave so that she can't tell them this thing about uh, Mrs. Whatever. But again, you could easily do that with just like, oh no, I couldn't possibly tell you. It's far too personal. You know, and she, yeah. but she likes teasing the information. So you don't need that. So to go to the trouble of hiring an actor, giving him the lines, I don't really know what's going on there. <laughs> yes, it seems like a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. Um, I did look up the actor. He's not particularly notable or anything, but he he is he has appeared in Citizen Smith and Only Fools and Horses prior to this. So, I don't, of, of a handful of credits, uh, a lot of them are with John Sullivan. I don't know if it's his uncle or something. <laughs> and like, there's another there's another episode, for example, where you know she bumps into the bloke who works for BT who's fixing the phone, and she gets chatting to him, and she's quite flirty with him. And I guess he's much younger, like more her age, I guess. But, you know, if you're going to have her, oh, she's the oh the working classes, the tradespeople, I don't deal with mm. them kind of thing. It, it, again, it's just a, not a consistent character. It's like, oh, what's funny in this exact moment? And we'll do that. Don't worry about any kind of consistency or anything. Yeah. Uh, that is Dear John, basically. I did, I did think, um, you know, was dealing with divorce uh, here in the 80s, obviously sitcom does often circulate around a marriage or, or mm-hmm. the family the family nucleus i was trying to think of other other shows that deal with divorce i was thinking was this the first one that kind of really took it head on i don't think it is just off the top of my head the first thing i thought of was solo which is a carla lane show with felicity kendall mentioning this when we talked about bread yeah which the setup is her and her partner have split up i don't think they're actually married but they were living together or something. But it's about kind of like a woman, you know, having to do the single life again and all that. So it's obviously not the first thing, but 
it is unusual, I think. I think it's interesting that, you know, if you look at, I don't know, the 1940s, people didn't get divorced then, or very rarely. Mm. Yeah, I, I went online and looked at divorce rates. Cause that's <laughs> how I researched for a podcast. <laughs> and there's a big, it, it, basically the line jumps up around about 1970. So that's when divorces, they obviously happened before then, but perhaps it became more socially acceptable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. More, certainly numerically more common. And so I guess a mainstream sitcom might lag behind, mm. might lag behind real life a little bit. Uh, but but that's you know if I'm saying 1970, that's a long time until you get to dear John, isn't it? Yeah, I I can't I can't think of anything off the top of my head that specifically kind of tackles life as a divorcee. But I'm sure there must be. Something. I remember I remember being a kid growing up in Barnsley, working class, going to school, and one of my friends at school's parents were divorced, and that was a big deal. I can remember that being a thing. And that's not that's nothing to do with numbers. That's not to say. It was rare numerically, but it was noteworthy. It was something that was talked about. Oh, they're divorced. Yeah. Oh. It's interesting. Perhaps back then more so, is divorce a middle class thing? You have to be able to afford to get divorced. <laughs> like, or you're just stuck together. I, well, I would say definitely before 1970, certainly, yeah. Yeah, well, interestingly, the character of Louise, who is going to be the one most concerned with social normalcy and, and uh, mm. being the correct thing in society, I guess, she's divorced, like, she's leading the charge, and and there's never any sense of shame about it. The the one little bit of trivia I know is that, I believe it was Robin's Nest, a sequel to Man About the House, which was made in, originally made in 1977, I think that is the first sitcom, British sitcom, that has a cohabiting couple who are not married. But then, like, the whole point of that show is that they want to get married, but they can't afford it or something. You know, it's like they're, they're building up to it. It's never kind of... But even Man About the House that came before that, like a man living with two women, whoa. Yeah. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, so, I understand. So, you know, that's ten years before Dear John, so I guess that kind of adds up, doesn't it? Okay, then. Next up, we've got a few more outtakes from Time Gentlemen, Please. We had a lot to talk about with this as well, uh, really going into the history of Richard Herring and, and that sort of thing. But uh, here's a few little clips that didn't make it into the episode, dealing with some of the nice little gags that they have on the show, and then talking about some of the guest actors that they've had on, which were not always of the highest calibre. Uh, and finally, just a little tidbit about the writing. So, enjoy! Two classic Richard Herring jokes that I saw visual jokes the quiz machine's called fact hunt which is which is an old richard herring joke but the one they come back to several times in this series. indeed and on the um, blackboard the food blackboard it says lamb pissoles instead of rissoles and i gotta be honest <laughs> i laughed for about 15 seconds at that <laughs> <laughs> there are some nice like the gags that they just throw up on that blackboard uh, they, they are some nice little gags you know someone's got to come up with them and it's there's quite a nice bit of wordplay and stuff like that that goes on and there's another repeater gag where if anyone says alcoholics, uh, the gov will go, oh, we don't use the word alcoholics here. We use, and then we'll and he come has a whole, with some. He has a whole range of those lines, doesn't he? Yes, increasingly elaborate uh, phrases. So the first one he says is, we don't use alcoholics, we use publican's friend. Uh, so that's like a nice simple one. But then, like, obviously they have to get more and more kind of ridiculous uh, as they go along. So I made a note of some of them. and, and Go on, give me the highlights. Liquid Crusaders fighting the holy war against the teetotal Taliban. <laughs> That's very 2001. Yeah, that was very topical back then. <laughs> um, but my, my personal favourite is... Um, no, we don't call them alcoholics. We call them 
The Unquenchables. Which I, I liked. Like that. Now that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah it, that's a lot more evocative. Yeah. <laughs> Are there ever any other customers in the pub? Occasionally, yeah, but it's, it's plot relevant. Do you ever, you get extras in the background? No. Or is it only ever those people in the pub? It's, yeah, it's only those people in the pub. Anyone else who's in the pub is there because of some sort of plot relevant reason. Sure. Uh, they're so not there the, to have a drink. Well, no, they might be there to have a drink, but they're there to have a drink because something's happening, you know? I see. So, like, for example, there's one episode where they, they decide to countryfy the pub to try and get a more countryfied, uh, like, uh, upper-class establishment, which incorporates entirely him putting a stuffed pheasant on the top of the bar. Um, <laughs> but then all of a sudden, all these sort of posh people in gilets turn up yeah, so you know yeah. you get people like that in the pub but they're there because of it's just one more step before you go irish though isn't it irish the irish they're the cancer of the pub industry there's they do two episodes on that don't worry oh, do they? <laughs> no I've, <laughs> yeah. I've heard him do that material live i didn't realize they've made an episode of course they made an episode of it they've rinsed every bit of his live act there's yeah exactly so there's an episode where these irish decorators are in to to refurb the pub and he don't leave because he knows as soon as he goes they're going to put a bike in the window and <laughs> and so he finally does leave and they put a, a a wishing well in the snug and uh and then the leprechaun like haunts him it's a kind of weird episode <laughs> Uh, but then, and then there's also another episode where the Riley's representative comes around and they have a stout on tap. And whenever he drinks it, like he's forced to drink it a couple of times. Whenever he drinks it, he goes into this fantasy land where he's wearing the green suit and he's he got a, his he's got Irish, a wife and yeah. all these little Irish kids and all that sort of thing. And yeah, I, I haven't seen that, but I, I, I know exactly what you mean because I've seen him do a version of that live. <laughs> Interestingly, Alexander Armstrong has a guest appearance in the second series in what could be the worst casting I've ever seen. This is a total tangent, but I really don't like Alexander Armstrong. <laughs> well, his, weren't, weren't Armstrong and Miller one or two years behind Leon Herring at, at Oxford? I think that they, you know, they're in that same lineage and then uh, Mitchell and Webb just after them, you know, it's the same. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Armstrong and Miller show was on in 2001. So like that's kind of the period. Yeah. And I just like, I, it's definitely oversaturation. Like Alexander Armstrong, I find him completely dull and charmless. And so when he's presenting every show on the BBC, <laughs> I just think, well, I'm not interested at all. And as an actor, I've never found anything interesting about him either. And so in this particular episode where he guest stars, it's set up before he's there where Connie mentions that it's this, this guy who was a photographer that she was at college with. And then he turns up and it's Alexander Armstrong. It's like, well, he's 20 years older than her. So what's that? Like, what, what's yeah. that about? And then they're supposed to be like former lovers. Don't lie to me, Connie. They're awful. They're damn awful. But how am I supposed to sum up the human condition by photographing a plate of sausage and mash? It can't be done. <laughs> My art is stuck. 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 And uh, it's just really weird. He's supposed to be this like cool, groovy photographer, but it's Alexander Armstrong. They put an earring on him and he just looks like a dick. Uh, anyway, so a slight tangent there about how much I hate Alexander Armstrong, but it's a close tie between him and David Williams for worst guest star. So David Williams was in this. In the very last episode, David Williams plays basically the French equivalent of Al Murray, the French barm, a French oh, barman. I mean, that's the definition of antagonist for this, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. But it's David Williams. So obviously it's a stupid cartoon French character. Yeah. There was a time when we French would have shaved a woman's head for making the love with a German, but the European court banned the practice in 1997. Cassez-vous, Bruxelles! Yeah. 
it just it, yeah it doesn't work but yeah i mean there's some connection there as well obviously that was just before they went huge with uh little britain or about the same time i yeah. guess but uh you know richard herring was a script editor on little britain in the third series mm, so there's, there's obviously sure. some connections there I'm just looking at my notes from that episode. I, I, I can't remember which character said this, but I wrote it down. Someone said, oh, well, that was, that was the little pub landlord. I said, oh, well, you can prove anything with facts. Stuart that's Lee Stuart Lee line. That's, <laughs> yes. a, that's a line from a Stuart Lee stand-up show. Yeah, yeah. I think Stuart Lee was generally involved in uh, most of the scripts in some way, or the, like as a script editor at least. But yeah, just a curiosity, just speaking of writers there, there's one episode that has... So they're all written by Richard Herring and Al Murray, and some have Stuart Lee as a proper credited writer as well. And then yeah. there's one episode, the countrification one with the pheasant that I mentioned earlier, that has mm-hmm. two other credited writers, Rob Adie and Richard Merkin. Uh, nothing right. funny about that name. I was going to say, is, is that Richard Herring <laughs> under, a, under an assumed name? <laughs> yeah, it should be. Uh, but I, and I looked these guys up, I, like because they, they obviously Richard Herring was not farming out scripts to other people, that, otherwise he would have done it before. Uh, I looked them up. And they're obviously a writing duo. They, all their credits are the same. And they have a handful of sketch writing credits over the course of about five or six years. And that's it. And I can only assume that they wrote a sketch and somehow Richard Herring saw it or read it off the page or whatever. And when there's a really nice idea I want to use in there, I can think I can get, you know, a plot out of it. Can I use it? And yeah. they, that was that. That's the only thing I can imagine because I just don't think he was sending out like, oh, can you write a script for me? There was nothing in that episode that made me think, oh, yeah, this is an obvious sketch that's been padded out. So I don't know. But uh, an interesting sort of note just because mm. it was so unusual for the rest of the writing. Right then, that's almost all over. Thank you for listening. Come back next week when Series 2 will begin on a very big, well-remembered and very well-liked show. I'm not going to spoil it for you, though. Come back next week. In the meantime, stay up to date with us by following us on social media. That's Twitter and Instagram, at BritcomPod. That's the easiest way to get us. You can uh, send us a comment or, or get involved in some of the discussions about the shows we're looking at. And if you've been enjoying the show, then go ahead and and throw us a rating and review on iTunes. That helps to build our profile and get more listeners. So thank you for listening to this little bit of extra content. And one last clip I will send you away on, and this is from Rising Damp. And this is where we learned about a forgotten celebrity called Monolulu. So when we watched the the very first episode... Mm. Rigsby refers to Philip as Monolulu. Monolulu. He goes, hey now, Monolulu, what's going on here? And now this is one of my kind of real, the things I really like about watching old sitcoms is they'll reference someone, like a, it'll be a singer or someone, and I'll be like, who the hell is that? And I'll like Google them, and I'll end up in this whole like Wikipedia hole looking at old old uh, people. Who the hell is Monolulu? This was the thing, like, yeah, I was like, what the hell is Monolulu? Now, I was interested if you would know I don't, what, I don't, what it is. I don't get the reference at all. Monolulu was a West Indian guy who came to Britain and kind of created this character of an African prince. You know, he he dressed very uh, in in very bright colours and big you know headgear and all this sort of stuff. But he was a horse racing tipster. Okay. 
Like that was his jam. But he was, you know, in the 30s, he was like this this celebrity, this this like a bit like a John McCrick of yeah, his day, yeah. you know, like this kind of big character who does horse racing. Uh, one thing I was reading about him was basically said at, at one point in the 30s, he was the most famous black person in Britain. Right. And so it, it, it makes sense that that is a, a reference that Rigsby would make. But also is that a pretend African prince? And yeah, if, yeah. if you're saying that in the play that was revealed and that line yes. is from the play, then that... that well, I don't sense. know, but that's why I think it might be from the play, yes. Yeah. But that was just an interesting thing that just was completely lost on me, and I looked it up, and you know, like I say, I went down this whole kind of hole of, like, who the hell is this? But I, I feel like if I if I asked my dad about that, like, he'd know what it was, you know? <laughs> like, it would be, like, in his reference points. Just think if you're just one generation older. Yeah. But that's just... I just thought I'd mention that because it's one of the things I really like about watching old TV shows. Stuff I don't get. I, I also have a real thing for um, jokes that no longer work because they're out of date. You know, whenever, like, the punchline is like, oh, about three and six a yard. <laughs> um, like, anything like that. I really like. All right, so, so you're not... <laughs> referring to like racist jokes <laughs> no 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 i mean just like stuff that was just of a different time I get it. <laughs> uh, yeah